Oh, good morning. Welcome to worship this morning. I'm Pastor Bruce. Good to see you all here, and I know others will be coming. Say hello to them as they do, and welcome again to worship as we celebrate our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And if you're online today, welcome. We're glad that you join us. We know that the Holy Spirit is with us and will inspire us all and transform our hearts and minds so that we can truly serve the Lord. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we come before your throne this morning with every expectation that you will touch our hearts and our minds with your living presence. We thank you, God, for the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, transforming us day by day and moment by moment. And we're thankful, Lord, that we can trust you, that in you there is truth. You are truth. And God, we come to worship you today in spirit and in truth. And we thank you, dear God, that we can come before you and celebrate you and lift up your name through the grace that you've given to us through faith in Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of our sins. And you declare us righteous. And God, we thank you in all humility for the wonderful privilege we have of being your children, that we can even call you Abba, Father. Thank you so much for the intimacy and the love we enjoy with you now and forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand, let's sing.
Dear Lord, thank you that you are better than anything. Father, better, greater, higher, deeper, wider. Lord, you, you fill us. And Lord, you are our sovereign and loving King and Lord. And we're here to worship you. Thank you, Father, that you hold us. You're tender with us. Your grace just covers us, Father. And we're just so grateful, Father, for your gift of salvation. Thank you, Father, that you've made a way for ha us to have this relationship with you. Thank you, Lord.
Heavenly Father, it is a wonderful song we've just sung. Lord God, it's for your glory that we acknowledge you're a God of grace and mercy and compassion and love. And Lord, we thank you that even when we're unfaithful, you're faithful. Even when we don't speak the truth, you still do. Even when we live in this world and we forget who we are in Christ Jesus sometimes, Lord God, and we sin Lord God, the new covenant of Christ holds us fast. You are true to your promises. And so, God, we come to you today and we give you thanks and praise and glory. We thank you that we are who we are in Christ Jesus. The forgiveness of our sins, the guarantee of eternal life. Lord God, help us to live it out. Help us to respond. Help us, Lord God, to set our minds aright, to keep our eyes on Jesus and to live into who we are. We need your Holy Spirit's help to do that. So in humility, we come and we give you thanks and praise and look forward to each day because you're the God of all things, the maker of heaven and earth. And in you, Lord God, there's truth and goodness. And we come to you with great gratitude and with great expectations for what lies ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. A couple of quick announcements. Uh, come on up, Gabe, Susie, and then Jenny has another announcement. Uh, if you're interested in helping out in the nursery, you're more than welcome to let us know this. Uh, the more people we have that volunteer in the nursery, the better all the time. Coffee hour is after worship, and you'll notice there's a little sign-up board right outside these doors. On the left column are the deacons that are in charge. On the right, though, are treat opportunities. So if you like making cookies or cakes or whatever, bagels and cream cheese, whatever it is, uh, sign up on the right-hand side, and they would love to have that participation. Uh, the flowers here are in memory of Erlen Kruger, whose memorial service was yesterday, and there are still some sandwiches. Not enough to feed everybody, but first come, first serve. There are still some sandwiches. We want them eaten. We don't want to throw them away, along with cookies and all kinds of goodies down there. Um, Susie's got an announcement for us for Palm Sunday. And Gabe has an announcement about a wonderful movie and also thank yous. Good morning. Well, believe it or not, Palm Sunday is next Sunday already. And it's in our congregation, it's been one of the favorite traditions for our children to do the children's procession of palms. This year, we've added children and families. So what we'd like to do is invite kids, and their families, it can be moms and dads and aunts and uncles and grandmas and anybody that's family, to join them in helping us remember when Jesus came into, the, into Jerusalem and the people shouted, Hosanna. Mm -hmm. The kids have been practicing the Hosanna song in their, the combined class. So anyway, 
If you're watching online, please know you're more than welcome. If you'll meet us in the fireside room about 10 minutes till before worship, 10 till 10, and we'll go through the song once and kind of get everybody organized. So come join us. One of the young moms in our church told me that this is one of her favorite childhood memories from coming to church was the children's procession of palms. So we hope you'll join us for this festive occasion. Well, hello, hello. Uh, my name is Gabe, the youth pastor here. Um, I have two things for you guys. For one, um, it was kind of a fun la night last night. Me and some of the youth kids actually went and saw a movie called Jesus Revolution, if you guys have seen it. Um, if you guys haven't seen it, um, it is an amazing movie, and I encourage all of you guys to go watch it. Um, it's both encouraging, challenging, and uplifting in a lot of ways for everybody, uh, whether it be people that are in ministry as pastors, uh, or that's just a general congregation, someone who's new to the faith, or someone who's been a believer since they were two years old, and now they're closer to 100 than not, but <laughs> um, it's just a really cool movie, so I encourage you guys to go watch it. And also, um, those of you guys don't know, my wife is pregnant, um, and she got her due date exactly on Wednesday, um, so we are right there waiting for our tiny little girl to come, but we had a baby shower, um, I think like a month ago almost, yeah, yeah. it was like a month ago. Um, my wife and I have been very bad about getting you guys thank you cards for all the people that gave us gifts. So after three weeks of having them sit in our house, I have thank you cards for you guys. So I just want to say um, I'm going to try and find you as quick as I can. I get distracted and sometimes I'm like, oh, I forgot I have a card for you. But we have those and we also just want to say thank you very much. So, yeah. Um, and I think that's pretty much it. Kids are head good to head down. Yep. All right. So kids, high school and down, pretty much head down. Me and Susie got them. Great. Right. Jenny's got one more announcement yeah, as they're going. I do. Um, Cody, Cody, stand up for a second. Cody, he, he has been living up in uh, North, North Portland area and would like to kind of stay up that way, but he's in need. His, his van that he's been living in is no more, and so uh, he needs a room to rent, and he's willing to even come out this way and uh, commute by bus and stuff like that, but he needs a hand, and, and if you've got, just want to chat with him after church and just kind of get some ideas rolling and we can all brainstorm and see if we can um, help make the need of our brother. Yeah. Yeah. Huh? Oh yeah. Yeah. He wants a, a room to rent so he can pay about five, 500 a month, something like that. All right. Great. Thank you. I'm um, also the Seder service is not this coming week, of course, but the following week. It's a busy week between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. And on Thursday night at 5.30, we'll have our Seder uh, Upper Room Last Supper uh, experience together. And just to let you know, it's from 5.30 to 7.30-ish. And uh, everybody's welcome, kids included. There's a special bit for the kids to do as well. And if you're coming, uh, bring a main dish, salad, side dish, or dessert, and then we'll provide everything else. All you need to do is come and bring some food for us to eat. We'll also have a kosher menu available. Um, Sherry's, Cheryl's working on that. I'm not sure when we're going to get that out. But for this time around, we passed it through the congregation last time. We have almost 50 people signed up. Uh, I'm leaving them now on the counter in the office. So if anybody else wants to join us on that Thursday night, you can sign up in there and we'll, we'll get a head count and then we'll be able to get enough supplies. Any other announcements that we need to mention? Make sure we don't miss something. Lots going on. It gets busier and busier. I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans. We're going to take a little break after this for a couple of weeks. I wanted to preach on the triumphal entry of Christ 
a real traditional focus on his lordship in our lives, and then also on the resurrection celebration of Jesus the following Sunday. We'll be looking at those uh, specific texts as well. So we'll be back to Romans in about three weeks, but uh, this is right now, we're still in the part of the book of Romans where until we get to verse 21, Paul is highlighting that neither Jew nor Gentile alike are free from the consequences of sin without the Savior, without the forgiveness of their sins on Judgment Day. And there was a lot of presumptions made that certainly those that weren't Jewish will definitely be judged by God. That's what was widely understood in the Jewish community. But the problem was the Jewish people had come to believe mistakenly that they were immune from judgment and that they were free from all of those consequences. And so Paul's been working very hard in the introductory three chapters of his letter to help people realize that no one is immune on Judgment Day apart from a Savior, our Lord, our Messiah, Jesus Christ. And he's bringing the church together so that nobody imagines they're of a higher status with God than another. So I wanted to give that bit of backdrop before we come to the text this morning. Let's pray first. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we come to your word. We thank you that we've praised your name and we've been touched by your spirit and we celebrate you. And Lord God, we celebrate your word now. We come to your letter to us, written by Paul to people we've not met before long ago, but still so relevant and so important. Help us to get to know you, Lord, better through this, that your Holy Spirit will touch us deeply and richly with confidence in you, that you are true God. Truth itself comes from you. You are truth. And we give you praise and glory now as we turn to your word. Amen. So Paul continues in this vein, this thought, and he says this. What advantage is, then, is there being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Because up to this point, you might imagine nothing. But then he surprises us. Much in every way. First of all, they've been entrusted with the very words of God. What if someone didn't have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar, as it's written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we're being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil, that good may result? Their condemnation is deserved. True is a great word, isn't it? It's, there's just no better truth other than true. True is like a superlative. It's at the top of the heap. I thought of some words that go with it. True love, true blue, true as an arrow, tried and true, true colors, ring true, hold true, true north, totally true. You can't get truer than true. And God is true, clear through. And the Jewish population, though, are questioning whether Paul's teachings make God out to be a liar that maybe God isn't faithful if what Paul says is correct. And they're rejecting what Paul is saying, and they're also insinuating things about what Paul is teaching that aren't true. And so Paul starts off 
this portion of chapter 3 with a lot of give and take, a lot of Q&A going on, questions and answers, that are really, at first glance, difficult to sort out because they're so short, so fast, and in fact, he doesn't get back into the deep riches of these questions and answers until later on in Romans. So we're getting a glimpse of what's to come, but a glimpse makes it even harder to figure it out. So we're going to try and break that down this morning. The key piece in this part of the book is to realize that Paul defends that God is in fact true. He's true to his covenants, and he's true to his word, his promises. And he'll never change that. In fact, he's thinking maybe of Romans 23, or not Romans, Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man, the Bible says, that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? And those are rhetorical questions. Of course he does. Yes, he honors his promises. He's totally trustworthy. And that's the great backdrop that's at stake in these verses, these questions and these answers. The Jews thought that the Mosaic covenant that they had received on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 to 24 guaranteed that having been God's chosen people, they were immune from any consequences of sin. They didn't deny that they were sinners. That's not the problem. They didn't deny that they broke the Mosaic law, but they'd come to understand and promote and teach and celebrate that the promises of God were blessings for their, their people, and the punishments for disobedience, they kind of neglected that. It's like the church today out there, not here, but elsewhere, they might not ever talk about hell or sin or the consequences of judgment. They just want to kind of sweep that aside and let's just stay on the blessings and the good stuff because that other stuff makes us uncomfortable. And we want to believe that everything's going to turn out rosy and everything's going to be fine, so we'll just camp on the blessings. And that's kind of where the Jewish community had gone under the rabbinical leadership and others that they were relying on. And so the Mosaic Covenant, which was conditional, said that God said, I will bless you if you obey me, I will punish you if you don't. It was the don't part that they didn't want to discuss. They figured they were immune from that. If they simply studied the law, listened to the law very carefully, very studiously, very intently, and they had the sign of circumcision in their community, that they were safe, that they had nothing to worry about when they faced God someday face to face. And this is the trouble that Paul is trying, or is addressing, that's creating consternation. They can't believe what Paul is saying, and they're, they're all confused. They started off in the wrong premise, and they ended up with the wrong result. Now, Paul is saying your premises are wrong, you're not immune, and as a consequence, these are the results that you should be looking at, and he'll deal more with that later. So the first part we want to look at in our outlines is this. Jews are entrusted with God's words. What advantage is there in being a Jew? Well, it's not immunity from the consequences of sin, but there is a strategically important advantage, and that is they have the Word of God. They've got the law. They have the Old Testament. They have all this blessing from God in their hands, in the scrolls that they read. It's all there, and it's a great privilege. 
So he says, what advantage then is there being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Because they might be thinking, Paul doesn't seem to care or appreciate any of his Jewish heritage. Because remember, Paul is Jewish. Now he's a believer in Christ. So he's part and parcel of that group. And they're wondering about him. On Judgment Day, Paul would say, there is no advantage. God will judge everybody according to their works. And I know that in my pastoral conversations over the years, people have said, you mean, I thought we're saved by grace. Why are all the judgments based on works? Because if you read carefully everything Jesus says and everything the Bible says, when you face God someday, all judgments are based on works. Then how are we saved by grace? Grace is God's gift to us that when Christ died on the cross, all the negative, bad, evil, sinful works, the wicked things in our lives, the things that dishonored God and and besmirched his name, those are all removed by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Then, when we're judged, only the good works remain. Now, the confusion at the time was, well, the Jewish community needn't worry about that. We're just sort of righteous by default because we do listen to the word and we're circumcised. Any questions? And Paul says, yes, I have several. When you face God on judgment day, he will judge you according to your works, and you're not going to get free from your sins without a Savior. That's true for Gentiles and Jews alike. That is a cross-the-board, universal, worldwide expectation. But until that point, though, you do have an advantage, and that is you've got the Word of God in your hands. That's a huge advantage. All Gentiles, as we saw earlier, have a conscience, unless it's been seared or tarnished somehow, and they can tell from creation attributes of God to a very large extent, actually, if they're willing to dig deep and, and let it sink in. And they're, they're guilty before God for the things that they've chosen to neglect or suppress. Remember the suppression? The Jews, too, were suppressing parts of their faith, part of the written word of God. So, verse 2. Are there privileges they enjoy? Well, there's one in particular that Paul mentions, and it's this. He says, much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. Now, it's interesting when you look at it. He doesn't say second of all and thirdly and fourthly. There's just first of all. And it doesn't mean that there's a sequential list. Like, Paul, did you forget to continue your thought? No. It means chiefly or above all else. Or this is the main thing. This is the great privilege you enjoy, and that is you do, first of all, have the Word of God entrusted to them. The most important thing they have. And then Paul used a very interesting word. You don't pick it up in the English, but in the Greek you can, and it's logia. And logia is the word that we translate in English, the very words of God, the very words. Now, to a Greek reader a Gentile reader, they would understand that what Paul was talking about was an oracle. You know, you've heard maybe of the oracle of Delphi and all that kind of thing back in the ancient times. Well, they were mysterious utterances that could be understood maybe, but most of the time you didn't understand what they were talking about. It needed a key. It needed an interpretation. It needed somebody to explain it. And so in this case, what Paul is saying is, We have these oracles in the Word of God 
that need a key to understanding. And as we'll see, that key is Jesus Christ. That helps us understand the mystery, so to speak, of what God gave us in those treasured words that God provided his people. So they're entrusted to those people. They were given that trust for the sake of the world. We talked last week about the missional work of God's people to be the salt and light to the world around them, to share that word of God, to preserve it, protect it, ensure it, copy it very carefully. And you'll look at their history. They copied it extremely carefully because they knew they were entrusted with that privilege. And they were meant to share it with us, the world around them. And we're grateful for that. Now they ask then, the second point, are some questions. So yes, you have an advantage. You have the word of God. Now Paul is saying, no, that they've misunderstood the word of God and they misunderstood the nature of the Mosaic Covenant on Mount Sinai because they thought it was maybe more of an unconditional promise. Everything's going to turn out fine, guys. We're going to be fine. Don't worry about a thing. God promised us. We're good. We're chosen. We're in. We're immune. On we go. And Paul says, that's not true at all. And that created all kinds of consternation. And so I pulled out the three questions that they're likely asking that challenge the truthfulness of God because they're struggling with what Paul is saying and they assume then that God is faithless and a liar and everything else. They're, they're really at odds with Paul at this point. So let's look at their questions. One is verse 3. What if some did not have faith? Would their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? The second question that is asked is in verse 5. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? And then the third question that Paul deals with, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? It's almost like, hey, our sins are doing God a favor. Shouldn't that just be recognizable? And we'll, we'll get a little bit more into this. There's three things that are brought up in these three questions, and Paul deals with each one because it's an attack on God's character. If they don't understand what Paul is saying, they will misunderstand God, and they'll reject the entire message because if they don't understand what Paul is saying, they'll think that God is a liar or that God is faithless, and all the other things that, about God that we know in the Word of God will, will fall apart. And so they reject Paul. Like, we, we can't go there. No way. And so Paul has to defend his gospel. He has to defend the good news of Jesus Christ and everybody's need for Jesus. So let's look at what he does. First of all, the third point in your outlines is this. God is faithful even when we are not. That's a take-home, isn't it? Where does that have legs? Great, strong ones. God is faithful even when we are not. That's very comforting. Verses 3 and 4, let's bring their question together with Paul's brief reply. What if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Paul says, not at all. No way, no how. Let God be true and every man a liar as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. Now, again, brief background. The Jews thought they were immune from judgment. 
Paul says, you know, you do have advantage. You've got the word of God, but that's no advantage on Judgment Day without Christ. And that was unsettling for them. It's like, well, does God then not own up to the Mosaic Covenant he made with us? What happened to the blessings? If we're not faithful, then does God just let it all go? And then God's not faithful? They assumed the two went together. I'm safe in the covenant, so therefore if God doesn't keep me safe, then God's being a little bit faithless. So does God's faithfulness depend on my faithfulness? And if I'm unfaithful, then is God unfaithful? It's like we're getting dragged into this whole thing together. There's a lot of confusion there. And it makes it even harder to figure it out because Paul doesn't dwell on it very long here. He picks it up later on. But he knows these questions are coming to the surface very quickly in his letter. And so he just says, I know what you're thinking. And I have answers to what you're thinking. And we'll dig in later. So this is just those initial little bits that intrigue them and bring them further along in the letter and they don't just fold it up and throw it away and say I've had it he's encouraging them to continue so did God walk away from his covenant with Israel is God faithless again it's based on a misunderstanding we would say no no way no how and what Paul does is he validates using King David as an example what he's saying he turns to Psalm 51. David had had an affair with Bathsheba. Remember that story, maybe? And, and he ends up you know, having her husband murdered and everything so he can marry her and all this business. And it was just terrible things went on. And his conscience was bothering him, and he just couldn't seem to let it go. And so he writes Psalm 51. And that's not a diary you keep at your bedside. That's, some, that's not something you put a lock on it and you hope nobody reads it until after you're gone. This was a psalm meant to be sung in worship. And it shows the sign of humility and the gravity of his sin and his, his need to publicly express his remorse and his, his repentance. But he's writing to God, not the congregation. But the congregation is participating with him. That's quite something for a king to do, huh? And let's look at one verse, verse 4. The song went like this. Against you, he's speaking to God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak. And at that point, the Jews would have liked it to stop in Paul's day. Because remember, they thought they were immune from punishment? David, the king, who there is no greater epitome of a king in their minds. He's the top-notch King David is all that. But King David says, I am not only a sinner, but then he says this, God, you are justified when you judge. So if God will judge David's sin, then how can the Jews in Paul's day claim immunity? This is what He's doing. He's just simply saying, look at what the Word of God says. Let's get back to the privilege that you have. You've got the Word. What does the Word say? And clearly, God judges the activities, the works. And David confesses his sins. And that's what the people in Paul's day and our day shouldn't ever forget. There is no immunity. I, um, my heart kind of breaks, to be honest with you, when I hear 
people whose faith is limited. Maybe they know something about Jesus, or maybe they don't know anything about the church's faith and our understanding of the Word of God, and they haven't read the Bible, and they're very confused. And, they, you know, some people teach that Jesus is a sinner, too, and all kinds of things are going on out there. And then when someone dies, there's a phrase that you often hear. You probably think of it right now. What do people usually say, generally speaking? They've gone to a better place, but they don't know how. They just assume that there's an immunity, that God isn't that holy, and, and that surely everybody's going to be fine, and they don't want to imagine that it's not fine. So they, they tend to ignore God's justice and God's judgment and the nature of our sin and God's holiness, and they just sort of sweep it all under the rug, and they say, it's all okay. They don't really get it, and it'll be all right. And that breaks my heart, because that's not true. You need Jesus. And Paul is saying this very clearly in Romans. We're saved by faith from first to last. He says in Ephesians, we're saved by grace of God through faith, not by works. No one can boast. He says elsewhere that if it's not grace, any, if it's not grace alone, then it's not grace anymore. There's no such thing as grace plus works, because then that's not grace at all. Grace is a pure gift from God. It's all out there in the Word, and we're so privileged to have it. Don't ever let it go. I remember one time in a children's message, I mentioned hell, and one of the children was aghast, and I'd say, hell, you swore. I don't know what he's hearing in their house, but I said, no, no, it's a word. It's a legitimate word. It's in the Bible. It's describing Judgment Day and the consequences. And they were like, really? So I've never used that in a children's sermon since. Because <laughs> I, I think the automatic go-to is it's cursing, it's swearing, it's bad language. Shame on you. Isn't that telling us something about culture and how that word is used? It's no longer objective. It's no longer scriptural. It's just a curse word. And the kids know that, that way. So I have to be careful now. Otherwise, the pastor did a no-no and shouldn't have said that. But it's all there, and we shouldn't sweep it under the rug, and, and it's something that we should address. So the Jews have a lack of faith, but God is still faithful, and that's his point. Don't think that our actions impact God's nature. God is faithful even when we're not. What he says, he'll do. What he promises, he'll fulfill. It's good that God is faithful. So the righteousness that we have is based on God's faithfulness to us and not our faithfulness to God. That's grace. Romans 1.17, reflecting back to where Paul started all this, for in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed. Not our righteousness, a righteousness that God gives us by grace. A righteousness that is by faith, trust, from first to last, just as it is written, what the righteous will live by faith. That's, a, that's what we camp on. That's what we trust. So even when we're not as faithful as we should be, and maybe we're feeling a little bit faithless that day, maybe Jesus hasn't been in the forefront of our minds, has that changed God's faithfulness to you? Not a bit. All those the Father has given me, Jesus says, I'll never let go. He doesn't kick you out of the house. 
right? There's the faithfulness of God that's the bedrock of our foundational joy. God's got this. God's got me. Thank you, God, that you've got me. Because sometimes I wonder if I've got you. You know what I mean? It's not rooted in my feelings. It's not rooted in my behavior. It's rooted in the very nature of God. Is God going to see you home? Does God welcome you and wipe every tear from your eyes and declare all things made new? Do you have eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ? Does God promise that by his grace through faith alone you are saved? Then camp on it. He is faithful. He will see you through. Then we want to live into that, don't we? That's where the rub comes. That's the challenge. Living into who we really are in Christ. And don't think because you've sinned that we therefore have lost God's grace. Because then it's not grace anymore. It's works. It's like, well, God got it going. He gave me faith to believe in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. Now I've, I've, it's on me to keep it going. And there is a perseverance of the saints, this ongoing hanging on to our faith. And yes, we have our emotional ups and downs and experiences, right? We do. But through those ups and downs, God is the steady joy, that steady truth. He is faithful. Then fourthly, in your outlines, God is righteous even when we are not. So God is faithful now, and we see that God is righteous even when we're not. Verses 5 and 6. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what should we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? They thought that Paul was saying that when we sin and God's grace then increases, we've done God a big favor. Think how appreciative we are when we come to church and worship and we say, I have had a terribly sinful week. I am more grateful this week than, I have a, than when I have a good week. Praise the Lord for grace. I am so excited. And Paul says, that really magnifies the grace of God. Isn't that a wonderful thing we can bring? How was your week? Oh, it was really bad. I, I really sinned like crazy. Praise the Lord for grace. Somebody else comes and says, how was your week? I had a great week. I felt like I really served the Lord. Yeah, I really appreciate God's grace. Compared to the sinner, the one seems kind of mellow. The other one sounds like a lot of gratitude. And so the people are kind of scratching their heads and trying to understand Paul and saying, well, if, if I understand you correctly, and they don't, you're telling me that my unrighteous behaviors in the long run, in the big picture, actually make God's righteousness stand out even more. Praise the Lord. I'm doing a good work in a bad way. Paul says, oh, no, that's totally off the mark, wrong. This is not what we want to do. If our unfaithfulness makes no difference to God's faithfulness, what point or need is there for us to be faithful? And why should we be blamed for being unfaithful? If our sins magnify God's righteousness even more, then why be wrathful? Why would God be upset? Dear God, your righteousness really stood out this week compared to me. Praise the Lord. Now, why are you mad at me? That's to misunderstand the truth. 
There's a modern example um, where sin in our lives is claimed to be a good thing. Have you ever heard of anybody that justified sin and said something good was necessarily coming out of that sin? In other words, you had to sin in order to produce good. That God made it inevitable that you must sin in order for God's purposes to prevail. Anybody ever heard of that? You ever heard of Mormonism? Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Remember the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? In their understanding, Adam and Eve had to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This was their God's plan. And in that plan, then they realized that they had a sexual nature and they could bear children. So they don't say it was a fall downwards. They say it's a fall upwards. I've never fallen upwards. But there's a fall upwards that was intended by their God so that Adam and Eve could procreate and have kids. If they hadn't eaten the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, there would have been no children in their understanding. Ideas have consequences. And Paul is addressing consequences in the Jewish community in his day that he's bringing to the light. And there are people today, there's an example that would say, yes, but this was a sin that Adam and Eve did, but it was necessary, therefore it was good in the bigger picture, and God intended it to happen, and on you go. Now, if you didn't know that, I, I'm not surprised you didn't know that. Um, I'm, I've got, I'm working on a, a paper, by the way, that I'll have available to you on Mormonism and different facets of it, in case you're curious, because we're the number one mission field for that group. They claim to be Christians, identifying here with us, and we should know that and know what it means. And I'll just cut to the chase. If you talk to anybody and they use the same words, just do this for me and, and for your own sake. Say, what do you mean by that? And draw it out. Similar language, different meanings. Don't be fooled. So anyway, just a little side pastoral care there. Please be careful. Ask good questions. So you'll see no crosses in an LDS place of worship, will you? Not one cross anywhere. There's something to that that maybe doesn't meet the eye at first, but it's all there. It's a loud-spoken lack of a symbol that they don't need a Savior. The only thing Jesus does is get you out of the grave. After that, your works tell you which of the three heavens that they teach you'll go to. The highest heaven, you become a god or goddess. Christians probably end up in the middle one. And if you're not a very nice person, you can squeak through, you get the lowest heaven. I'm sorry, I'm Yes. It is. It's in the book of Moses and others. It's in the book of Moses and other places if you've read those. There are three. Celestial, terrestrial, and telestial. Right. I'm not, well, only if you're a servant in the highest one. But you have to be a Mormon not married in the temple. I'll show you. Anyway, we'll talk some more, Cody. So anyway... That's part of the Mormon understanding. Yes. Okay. So we'll, we'll talk about it later. We'll talk about it later. I got all the information for you if you want to look. We'll talk about it. Okay. Th but good questions. I appreciate that.
So what we want to look at here is what Paul is getting back to is that we don't want to say that our faithfulness or our unrighteousness does God a favor. God does not use sin to draw us into some greater good. That's not God's nature. He's righteous and not unrighteous. But this is the question that they have, and they think, Paul, what are you talking about? I don't understand. And Paul, again, is bringing to light what's the truth. So is God just then when he brings wrath on sinners? If we're doing God a favor, if we're actually living out the consequences of what God has asked us to do, then do we then serve God by sinning so that God's grace can increase and we get more praise to the Lord? And the answer is no. God is holy and God does not bless sin. So in his holiness, he judges sin. And again, we need a savior. God disciplines those he loves very much. It may seem difficult at the time for any of us, but he loves us and he disciplines us to shape us and mold us. And we don't escape that. So how can we bring God's justice and wrath on unfaithful Jews and Gentiles together with God's covenant faithfulness? It's because they don't understand that the Mosaic Covenant wasn't a guarantee of salvation. There's blessings and there are punishments. And the only way God can be faithful and just is if there's both, as God leads it and ordains it. The only covenant in the Bible that saves us is the new covenant in Christ Jesus. And that's what we all need is our Savior, Christ Jesus, to save us. Then fifthly, God is truthful even when we're not. God is truthful even when we're not. Verses 7 and 8. Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we're being slanderously reported as saying and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result? Their condemnation is deserved. The truth of God is a major theme up to this point. It's, it's kind of the, the center point that knits together chapters 2 and 3, the truth of God. And he brings it out at least six times so far. And this is the last section where he mentions it. And it comes out in three different ways. We've got faithfulness and righteousness and truth. And all of these are important attributes of God. And they have nothing to do with how we're behaving or how we would misconstrue the nature of God. He's inherently all of those wonderful things, truth itself, and we can rely on him. And truth of God has links, and this is where when we read it, we may not pick up on it. The truth of God is linked to God's reliability. Is God reliable? Absolutely reliable. Are we reliable? Mm. Sometimes, but not all the time, right? So there's a comparison going on there, and in their minds, they're like, well, if, if we can't get a pass on our sins over here, then maybe God, there's something wrong with God. But they know there's nothing wrong with God in their point of view, so then they think Paul is mistaken, Paul is wrong, Paul is upsetting them, but he's simply saying, you've got this wonderful privilege, it's called the Word of God, please read it. How many times did Jesus say to people, haven't you read? Haven't you read? Haven't you read? In other words, yes, maybe you've read it, but you've, it's never sunk in. You only saw what you wanted to see. Haven't you read? And this is what Paul is doing, is he's bringing them back to the truth of his word to help them come along. That their claims for truth are pseudo-truths 
or partial truths. One of the things that comes out in the, uh, you know, I, I heard an atheist speaking on uh, YouTube or something, and he was, he was a brilliant man, he was a very smart fellow, I could tell just from the things he was saying, and he said, well, we don't need truth. I, I, okay, where is this going? He says, we have proximate truths. We can get enough truth that we know how to go forward and, and understand what truth is. Proximate truth. I was thinking, proximate to what? Where's the basis? Is it proximate to me? But then I might have a different truth that's proximate than yours. Where's the bedrock? Where's the source? Where's the root? And it's always going to be God who is truth. So is God unfair then if he condemns sinners, if it highlights his glory even more? That's the question they have. And they're struggling. And the answer is kind of surprising because Paul turns it around on his head. This is what Paul is saying. God is indeed true and faithful even to unreliable liars like us. That's a wonderful gift in the nature of God for us. So what is then inherent in God's nature? That God's overflowing grace and mercy to sinners gives God glory, not sinners. I don't give God glory. God has glory. I give God glory only in the sense that I praise his name, that I'm loyal to God, that I serve the Lord, that I declare the good news of Jesus Christ. That's giving God glory, but he doesn't need more glory, and I can't steal his glory because God is inherently all that, right? So I thought of a few verses that bring out this. It says in Romans 5, it says, But the gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? The very gracious, very gracious God. And then in Romans 9, what if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if... He did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory. Even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. He's declaring the riches of his glory. So it's not on us. It's the very nature of God. So if God is so gracious, what role does the law have? Who cares? Now you're really upsetting the Jewish community who have had the law, and this is a wonderful privilege. If you think that God's grace is everything, then what good are the Ten Commandments? What good is anything that God has given us if it's all by grace? And if God is true even when we're not, if God is faithful even when we're not, if God is righteous even when we're not, well then I don't see the point, is what they were starting to think. And he goes right back to the nature of God and back to grace. He won't depart from it. Why do we do the things that we do? Why do we want to serve God with ethics, with our love? Why is it that loving God and loving neighbor is so important to a believer in Christ? Because it comes from inside. The law hasn't changed, but now it's written on our hearts. Love God and love neighbor never changed. 
The Ten Commandments don't change. This is all part of God's work in the heart of a believer. My favorite example for what Paul would say to people that think that let's go on sinning, you know, so that God's grace and mercy just looks so much more tremendous. Put it this way. (laughs) Have you ever sort of wished that you were a terrible alcoholic or a drug user or you'd murdered somebody just so you could have a better testimony? (laughs) You know? So how did you come to Jesus? Well, when I was about five years old after church, I went home and I heard a pastor preach and I was thinking how do I get to heaven for sure so I asked my mom and my mom told me how to get to heaven by faith in Jesus and I went into my bedroom and I prayed and then ever since then I've been a believer in Christ praise the Lord well I murdered I was part of the mafia I was a hit man I hated everybody I was on heroin drank like a fish Stole, robbed, pillaged, raped. Terrible individual. And then along came this wimpy little know-nothing Christian guy that really I just wanted to kill him too, but he shared the gospel with me. The light went on, the Holy Spirit moved. Now I'm a believer in Christ. Praise the Lord. Who do you want to have give a testimony in your sanctuary that Sunday? (laughs) You'll all be, wow, look at what God has done. And they have something weird like that going on. Because it's always a wow. Whether it's a, a easygoing, I'm a believer, versus the wow, look where they came from. But aren't both miracles? See, so the question isn't how bad was it that then gives God more glory. The question is, did God's glory show up? Yes. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, don't think for a minute that your sinning actually enhances God. God doesn't need enhancing. He's all that already. He's faithful. He's righteous. He's true. What he says, he'll do. So then he asks the question in chapter 6, because he he does get back into these things again about chapter 6 to 8, and he says in chapter 6, at the very start, and it's one of my favorite illustrations, is what? Should we go on sinning so that grace can abound? Great question. Will grace God's grace exceed our sin? Oh, yeah. So let's sin some more so that we can really thank God on Sunday. And Paul's response to that is something akin to, that is so insane. This is where I love the Scottish thing, and you'll remember it, right? Great Scott knew! This is what he says. It's incredible. blows my mind. Anybody that says that our sinning actually enhances God in some way, it ought to be condemned. And in fact, when he says it's just a human argument, you know what he's saying? I'm even embarrassed to bring it up. It is so wrong. So he apologizes. This is the key piece that we can all take home. Have I been faithful all the time? But God is always faithful. Am I righteous all the time? But God is always righteous and declares me to be righteous by his grace. Am I always on target? Am I always telling the truth? Do I promote the truth? Do I know the truth? Do I live into the truth? But God is always true. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Don't you appreciate that so much more this morning? You may not have a wowee 
striking off the charts testimony, but you have one. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are a walking miracle of God. All of us are that know Christ. It's a great message Paul's bringing. It is, I will tell you the truth, these verses are some of the most complicated verses in all of Romans because they're so short. And he doesn't get back to them until later on in Romans. You want to read the whole thing, please do. He goes deeper into all these various things. And we'll enjoy that when we get there. Um, let's just take a moment, pray, give God thanks and praise for his very nature and faithfulness to us through Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so very, very much for your love for us, for your love, your truth, your word. We're privileged to have it. We know that we're entrusted with your word for the sake of the world around us that we can share the truth of your word with others. We thank you, God, that through Christ Jesus, you have forgiven us our sins. That, dear God, we can be your people even when we're not as faithful as we would like to be. That we may not be as righteous as we'd like to be, but, Lord God, your righteousness is thoroughgoing, it's ongoing, it never fails, and you declare us to be righteous, and, Lord, that just touches our hearts. It's a great gift. And, Lord, thank you, too, that we are called to be true, true believers in Jesus Christ, true to your word, worshiping you in spirit and in truth, to be in your very nature, Lord God, is a treasure that we seek to live into. We thank you, God, for the forgiveness of our sins. We thank you, Lord, that Christ died to set us free from the consequences. And we don't take that for granted. Help us, Lord God, to live into what you have given us. And we're so grateful that you are faithful to us, that the new covenant is our security in Jesus Christ, and that we have eternal life Lord, help us not to forget all those wonderful benefits you've given us and to share with others the good news of Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Let's stand and sing. Hey, before we uh, sing, I just got an update from Rebecca Scott from David, and I just thought it'd be neat to share, share that. She said... Um, Yesterday, he was able to breathe on his own for a short time. Physical therapist says his muscle tone is still there. He just needs to work uh, to get through, through back. Adjusting to the pain of feeding tube in the abdomen is more painful than expected. It all takes time for his body to get strong again. CDC test results were negative. They don't know what attacked his immune system, but the damage is done. Um, but it's, and it's not getting worse. So I just, I just was thinking about, you know, all that... God has done and how good he is and I just praise God for for David and for all the prayers of the saints that have been lifting him up um, it's just to me it's miraculous to see him where he was um, Bruce and I had gone to see him and I just thought I wasn't going to see him again and he's moving along so pretty cool yeah on the promises of Christ my King through eternal ages let his praises ring 
no, no, sorry. <laughs> I thought I'd get that fixed. We're going to do a chorus after each verse, I guess. Okay. <laughs> sorry, we had another plan up here, but we just didn't let you know about it. Yeah. <laughs> Let's start with that chorus after verse one. Here we go. Standing, standing, standing on the promises of God, my Savior. promises that cannot fail when the howling storms of doubt and fear assail by the living word of god i shall prevail standing on the promises of god Praise the Lord. The promises are great. All right. Would you join me in prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. And may the love of the Father, and the sacrificial grace of Jesus, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore. And all God's wonderful people could say, Amen. Come on down to the fellowship hall. Some sandwiches need to be eaten up. Goodies, coffee, punch, you name it. It's all down there. Have a good time. Enjoy each other's company. Amen.